For episode seven of Night Rule, I was thrilled to have Harvey JK return. We hit on Mandalorian a tiny bit before diving into more serious topics, mainly uh, some American history, some of the more radical components within it that we should be reclaiming. Today's outro is from Takanaka Masayoshi. The name of this track is The Sunset Valley. And today's intro will be Suzuki Shigeru uh, from his 1979 album Lagoon. The name of this song is Cordoba Night. And after about a minute of that, we'll be going into the interview with the illustrious Harvey J.K. A reminder, today's episode is brought to you in part by me. Thanks, man. And uh, also a reminder that the views expressed within this podcast do not reflect the views of anybody, anybody at all. So without further ado, please uh, enjoy the show. you about mandalorian the mandalorian finale but i guess we'll have to do spoiler alerts we can do that no, we, can, what I want to say. we can start off with that if, if, if you want to if you want to plug in a mandalorian piece alongside the fdr we can start off there okay uh well first of all let's say welcome uh, everyone i can i can this will be the first time you hear this harvey welcome everyone to night rule episode seven uh we're here with professor harvey jk extremely excited to uh, finish our conversation uh, this is part part two. You should definitely check out part one if you haven't heard it already. Uh, how are you doing, Harvey? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing okay. Um, I'm still alive. That's a good sign, right? And uh, yesterday I was made Professor Emeritus as I stepped out of the classroom this past summer, saying that I didn't want to do online teaching. So I'm now I'm, I'm now honored with Professor Emeritus. So uh, that's you know, a nice feeling. Yeah, it has I mean, it has all the respect and, and all the kind of mystique of pr- professor, but also without a lot of the uh, like kind of grunt work. Not to mention, after 40 years, I now get a free parking place as opposed to having to pay for one at the university. How's that for a, for a start? It's, it's if there's one thing that continues to shock me, it's the amount that faculty at universities pay just for daily parking, like as though it's not some sort of necessity for them to show up and teach. Yeah, classes. I was shocked. Like, yeah, give me, give me seventy bucks a month for this parking spot. It's like what? Well, I got this email today that said, said what the perks of a full professor, not full professor, of a professor emeritus are, and 
right on the top or is it right on the top or right on the bottom i can't remember where it was but prominent <laughs> in the list was the fact that i had it that i had free parking and i thought wow it's a bad time the university gave me something so <laughs> this is great well, well that's the sweet that's got to be the sweetest plum I, I i would definitely feature that prominently if i was them i'm sure in their minds they're thinking oh man wait till they see this this is the, the greatest prize ever free parking yeah, and also I'm for now I'm keeping my office, which is also a major. I don't I'm not using it because of the pandemic, and I don't expect to be there except to drop in and pick stuff up during this year. But I'm pretty sure I've got it through next year too. So that that's to me really important. I have I have so so many books in the office. I I I don't have anywhere to store them at home. So now, but a professor uh, emeritus is not going to be on campus as much as a normal full-time professor. So they're giving, are they giving you free parking knowing that you're only going to be there like a fraction of the time? Ah, could be, but I'll surprise them next year. I'll hang out every day, all day. Yeah. I mean, if I were you, I mean, and I mean this literally, if I were you, if it was me in this situation, I would be just like living in my car at some point. (laughs) And it would basically, it would basically be an uplifting like screenplay, like Oscar worthy screenplay just waiting to happen. I'm pretty sure that movie's actually been made. The Homeless Professor. What was the one? There's been a few. I don't know, but I'm glad I never saw it. It might have given me nightmares. Uh, so, okay, first off, we're going to talk about FDR today, like we promised. Um, but first off, so you have, you're all caught up in Mandalorian. You've seen the last uh, episode. Yeah, you know what? We should it's say funny. spoiler alert right here, before yes, 20-minute mark. Right, you might tell people. So here, here's the funny part. I didn't realize this was the last episode. I should have calculated it oh. eight episodes each season. Oh, you must have thought it was just like the greatest standalone episode of all time. Then you're like, seriously, this is just. Well, one thing I couldn't get over it was like the it was the the, the most shoot 'em up episode you might say. I mean, and in fact, it was probably over the top, right? And I guess because it's for kids, nobody of nobody on our side, so to speak. You know, I won't. Sorry, I am giving away something. I don't I don't recall anyone getting killed on our side. How's that for a? <laughs> <laughs> And that clothes, I, I feel bad if there are people who, well, what the hell? I mean, we you gave know what, though? If they had done it kind of like platoon style, you know, with like hero, like, you know, protagonists just dying their arms in the air and then like the, the humanity of it all, that actually would have been amazing. But there's no way they would ever do that. No, it's for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lots of people died, obviously, and lots of and, and robotic creatures and drones, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, I. What did you well, what did you think of the ending? I mean, I thought it was fine. I mean, I think they they kind of had to I think they wanted to resolve the storyline. Uh, yes. The funny thing for me though, the whole thing was very very surreal because I got to the very end of the episode and it was oh, like, let's okay, Ms- what let's just tell him Luke shows up. Well, that's the thing, like uh, but I didn't know. See, this is the thing. You didn't know it was the last episode and I didn't know that was Luke like the entire time including after the episode. It was like this this person, you know, this uh, X-wing shows up saves this Jedi with a green lightsaber, saves the day, and he pulls his hood down, and I'm thinking to myself, the first thing I think is, oh man, they got this guy, whoever, whatever actor this is, they did his hair perfectly, because it looks yeah, like right? 70s style Luke I, Skywalker hair. I, and then I, the entire, I, I, went, I went for like three days not even knowing it was Luke Skywalker. <laughs> it just looks so weird to me. It looks so weird to me. I, like thought, I just thought, oh, they cast some guy who looks a little weird, he looks a little like Mark Hamill, so it kind of works, he's got the same hair, you know, that's cool, like he's a Jedi, whatever. I didn't need to, well, I didn't, well, didn't I was well, as satisfied. Didn't they? Well, in in the you know in the in the movies, didn't Carrie Fisher? She had passed away, and they sort of 
created her for the final episode, final scenes. Yeah. Right? And then also uh, Peter Cushing, I think is the actor's name from the first oh. Star Wars. Yeah. They used him, I think, in a rope, some movie called Rogue One, which I never saw. I mean, I always thought it was pretty macabre. Like, uh, I remember when I was much younger, they first started to do that, and they did these ads for the Dirt Devil with Fred Astaire, where it was Fred Astaire doing his dancing routine, but with a CGI Dirt Devil integrated oh. that he's pushing oh. around. And I, oh, I thought it was yeah. the most disgusting, like, thing, like, products. It's like, <laughs> like are we just going to reanimate people's corpses and get them to hire merchandise? Like, when did, at what point is it, you know, it's too far. By the way, I'm looking out to the west where you are, and it's an incredible fiery. It's not. A, it's not a fire, but the, the color of the sky is a fiery orangey red. I'm just. I'm as we talk about this. Uh, this Star Wars, just for the record, okay. It's a really nice day here too. Like yesterday, and to be honest, the whole the whole days leading up to today, it was basically like a, what I, the weather I like to call like being aboard a whaling vessel, you know, just sheets of rain just hitting you directly in the face. You oh, know? Classic Vancouver. Classic Vancouver, Vancouver rainforest, yeah. yeah. And then, But today it was super, super clear, and I went to the basketball court and was shooting some hoops, playing oh, horse. It was super nice. What is your temperature in Fahrenheit? Uh, in Fahrenheit? What's zero Fahrenheit? Like 33? Yeah, it's 32 for freezing. It's probably like 40. I don't know. It's still pretty cold. But it's oh, very yeah. sunny. You know those like winter days where it's like cold, but there's a lot of sun just for like a few hours in the morning yeah, no, and you can exactly. trick yourself by moving around. I wish it was like that today here. It wasn't. It was it was grayish, but now is the most beautiful part of the day. It's just gorgeous out there. Okay, let's get to business. Now what shall we talk about? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why, you know, a liberal hero uh, overcoming tremendous uh, economic and social turmoil uh, to uh, lead his country into uh, a better place would have. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know why people would think that kind of figure would be relevant to today's world. I don't know if there's anything going on right now that might be akin to the, uh, the recession in the late 20s and early 30s or whatnot. But um, you are you are one of the world's foremost experts on fdr that sounds funny even to hear it but i guess i am and you know we we have on night rule we like to have fun conversations about the mandalorian but you know we also like to mix it up with some serious talk too um and we were going to talk about some of i mean as someone who's really interested in uh kind of political rhetoric and history and you know great figures in history but also great social movements uh and great moments in history uh i wanted to talk to you about some of uh, your favorite or maybe maybe some of the most prescient uh, elements of, of FDR's legacy well, or speeches that you could talk about for our for our three listeners. Well, let's let's start off with a fact. Going back to your your sarcastic, humorous remark a little while ago, you know about uh, why why would why would we be looking for uh, evidence in the past that the way things are is not the way they had to be? And the first thing I want to tell you is that the yearning the yearning to to better understand America's promise has been around for decades now because in spite of every effort on the part of uh, the powers that be and especially the corporate powers that be that be and conservative po politicians or Pauls and neoliberal Democrats who might who, who are basically at best they're not even as good as Republicans from the 1950s practically the fact is that we are in the midst of a crisis here in the United States and given the role of the United States in the world, one could almost say in the world we're in the midst of a crisis, but most especially here in the United States, given our place in the world, comparable or at least 
somewhat comparable to the crisis that confronted Americans in the 1770s, which led to a revolution, uh, the crisis of the late 1850s that led to a civil war, and the crisis of the 1930s, the worst social and economic catastrophe in, in American history and quite possibly world history, the Great Depression, that also basically sort of instigated forces in, in Europe that we came to know of as fascism. And fascism was, the, was of course, the source of oh, the, the Second World War in, in, in the 20th century. So we're in the midst of that kind of crisis because for 45 years, the United States has witnessed, and I think other Western countries too, but I think most aggressively in the United States has witnessed class war from above on the part of capital, corporate, corporate types, conservatives, and neoliberals against you know, the, the legacy of the FDR years, the legacy of the FDR tradition, the legacy not only of the FDR tradition, but I want to make it very clear, the legacy of the tradition known as the greatest, greatest generation, which is by no means uniquely American. The Canadians have theirs, the British have theirs. So, I mean, we've seen 45 years of class war against working people. That has also involved culture wars against the rights of 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 what we used to call minorities, but we can clearly say people of color, and against women in case of people of color, their, their voting rights, not to mention the continuing oppression um, by way of police and others against uh, the daily lives of, of, of African Americans, and also the, the endeavors on the part of conservatives and the religious right, the evangelical right, to strip women of their hard-won hard-won rights to control their own bodies and to secure some kind of equality in, in, in public life, private and public life. So we're in the midst of a, a really terrible crisis. Inequality in this country for at least 20 years has been compared to the inequality of the Gilded Age of, of the 1890s to the 1920s. In fact, we're probably worse off now. The, the rich keep getting grossly, grossly richer. I mean, even in the course of the pandemic, the likes of Jeff Bezos and others has just you know multiplied. I mean, what did I read? Something about ninety billion dollars Jeff Bezos might have made in the course of the pandemic. Am I exaggerating? But it's the Amazon. You know, it's Amazon's is global monster basically. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's the nineteen twenties with tech billionaires, and and a fully globalized economy, right? Yeah, right. So so here we are, and so for the last twenty years, thirty years, there have been a, a periods of time in which Americans have created cultural phenomena such as in the in the 90s you're too young to know about this and since you're not since you're Canadian even less so but but here in the United States there was this incredible fascination during the 90s into the 2000s for the greatest not for the greatest for the founding fathers the founding generation of the United States yeah uh, founder chic you know, it's yeah, uh, well, like yeah, Doris Kearns it, Goodwin and, you know, the kind of books. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Right, but West, I, West, I, West Wing kind of comes out of that tradition, I think, to I a do. certain extent as well. Well, that, we're talking, first of all, about the founders, not the, not the, not the, yeah. But so let me make something clear about that. Well, before anybody called it founder chic, I wrote a piece back in the 90s called Founding Fathers Fever. I wrote it for the column that I was, that I wrote on a regular basis for the Times of London Higher Education Supplement. And I, and at the time, I said that all this fascination, we should not write it off as simply corporate creations of you know, a new way of making money. But I think Americans seriously, seriously, seriously 
we're looking back to the founding and to, to try to figure out just what is America supposed to be about? Because ever since, as I was saying a little while ago, the 70s, and then most especially in the course of the 1980s under Reagan and then Bush, but continuing in the 90s under Clinton, we really have seen this class war from above against working people. So when Americans went searching in the past, back to the 1770s, especially the generation of 76, but also the generation that, that, that authored the, or composed or crafted or drafted the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they were really looking for a way out. They were thinking, well, what does it mean to be an American? This surely isn't mm. it. Growing inequality, assault on rights. Um, and I could you know, enumerate a whole bunch of stuff that was happening in the 90s. We should never be nostalgic for the Clinton presidency, that's for sure. Okay, but then, and then it continued, has continued to some extent since then, although the left instinctively and, and rather stupidly turned its back on the founding generation, because in fact, the founding generation depended upon literally my hero, Thomas Paine and his writing of common sense for the very idea of an independent United States and for the making of a democratic republic. But then in the 2000s, we saw something which Canadians also witnessed, and as I said, the British too, and that is this fascination for the greatest generation, those who confronted the Great Depression of the 30s as teenagers and young adults, and then fought World War II against fascism as part of the allied forces in Europe and also in, in the Pacific. And again, there was this tendency on, you know, on the part of the right, they were trying to hijack the whole thing and claim that this was proof of fundamental, in, at least in the United States, American conservatism, completely ignoring the fact that the greatest generation was also the generation that created the FDR presidency and the New Deal and organized labor on a mass scale and, and pursued the creation of social security and transformed the landscape through the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. I mean, it was my argument is that and undeniably the founding generation was in some ways the most revolutionary and one cannot deny the remarkable generation that fought the Civil War and, and, and witnessed the end of, of slavery. But the generation that confronted the Great Depression fought fascism and then for all of their sins and failings, created the strongest and, and, and the strongest economy in world history and reduced inequality in America from 1938 all the way through to 1974. That's that greatest generation. And what happened? Well, the left kind of you know, scorned the idea of it as if it was some, some right-wing plot to make everybody want to go to war again. And meanwhile, the, the, the right wing hijacked the entire idea of it and celebrated the greatest generation, but did so by completely effacing and completely erasing the record of that generation from their age of 15 to 25 under FDR, and then completely erasing the fact that in the 1960s, sort of driven by their own children, the generation of the, you know, the young people of the civil rights movement and the young people of the anti-war movement and the young people who demanded you know, sort of a, a greater access to, to, to participating in public life. Um, and I could, you know, environmental movement, I could, you know, the women's movement and so on and so forth. That, that generation is, was also the same folks who were 15 in 1935, 25 in 1945, 35 in 1955, and they were only 45 years of age in 1965. And they're the ones who elected Johnson, who elected the most liberal democratic Congress probably since the 1930s, maybe even more so given the, 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 the fact that they enacted civil rights, they enacted voting rights, 
They enacted environmental protections, workplace protections, consumer protections. They literally reformed the immigration laws, opening the doors to far more um, persons of color. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. The point is, sure. the point is, you, you, when you raise the question in a humorous fashion about this, I can tell you that that on the left, we we have failed. We utterly failed to lay claim to our own history, to the progressive history, the radical history, and the revolutionary history, which basically should be ours, not at all the history that a right winger such as Reagan, a right winger such as Newt Gingrich, um, a right winger today such as you know the the, the guy who's finally going to get driven from the White House as Donald Trump has occasionally postured or nodded towards. I mean, you know, just fascinating the degree to which we on the left failed to lay claim to our own history and to make the found. You know, for all of their, I mean, I don't deny Washington held, owned slaves, Jefferson owned slaves, but Thomas Paine is the original founder, and Thomas Paine inspired the likes of the of the men and women of the 1770s to push the likes of Jefferson, the likes of Washington, and and the others to declare independence and you know create the makings of a democratic republic. There you go. I have spewed it out. Okay, I've spilled it all. <laughs> no, I love it. Um... When you look at what I think when a lot of people look at um, a lot of these historical examples uh, and this history, um, there's kind of an inspirationalism to it in a lot of cases, I feel as though like uh, certainly on the right when they're looking at, you know, say the founding fathers of that era, they're looking at someone like Lincoln, they're looking at the greatest generation. It's it, this, There's this idea that whatever whatever else they're trying to take some kind of uplifting aspect um, and it's not really about any kind of critical view of history. Um, yeah, well, I feel as the people know. on the left are a little bit susceptible to that as well. And I'm just wondering, like, like what are some of the more like practical lessons you think people should be taking from? Ah, perfect question because I can yeah. tell you what's what. My point. So about, we, we've got enough inspiration, but you know. No, no, I'm going to give you critical. I'm going to give you the critical lesson, which in itself is inspirational, and here it is. Okay. So let's let's consider the founders. Let's consider Jefferson and the Republicans of his day, and let's consider FDR and, and those he led. Well, if we if if we look closely, by the way, this is the, the if I ever get around to it because I'm get I'm lazy these days, and it's easier to talk about than write about these things. But I can tell you that this is the subject of my next right now fantasized book. What I'm going to tell you right now, okay? Okay. And that is that when you look closely. Let's take the example of, uh, in fact, I'm going to give you a quote. This is going to frame, this will frame our discussion. Okay, stick with me. I'm going to get the, I want to read it properly. So Rexford Tugwell, who was one of the brains trust of Franklin Roosevelt in, the, in his first campaign for the presidency, and then became a member of the sub cabinet. He didn't, wasn't a chief cabinet officer. He was a assistant cabinet officer. Um, he wrote two books about Roosevelt later after the 1940s recalling his time with Roosevelt. And at the beginning of One Cold, early on in the book about titled The Capital D Democratic Roosevelt, he writes this one paragraph, which I absolutely love, but I also am critical of it. So have a listen. We are a lucky people, he writes. We have been, we have had leaders when the national life was at stake. If it had not been for Washington, we might not have become a nation. If it had not been for Lincoln, we might have split in two. If it had not been for this later Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, we might have succumbed to a dictatorship, either by way of the Depression or fascism in World War II. 
For that was the alternative, much in the air when Roosevelt took charge. It's important that younger Americans who did not know him should understand what he found, what he left, and above all, how he went about his work, because the crises will, will never stop. Now, here's the thing. I love that because it, it conjures up an image of the importance of leadership. The problem is that if you ask Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, were the American people lucky? They might say yes, but they wouldn't say lucky that I was their leader. I don't think any one of the three of them would have would have I had. Think that's I think that's true. Yeah. Okay. But likely, what we need to remember is this: Americans do consider them the three greatest leaders, unless you're a right winger and want to throw Reagan in the mix, and I won't do that. Um, <laughs> okay. But 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 what's important is when you look closely at the history, and my generation has really produced a hell of a lot of history as as we used to say, history from the bottom up, or I, I, I guess in the United States, it was probably, I don't know, was it history from the bottom up or history from below? But those two terms serve the purpose. Mm. And when we look closely, this is something people need to remember. George Washington was clearly one of the first willing to take up arms against the British Empire. That's undeniable. However, when he took up arms, and when he was then even, even you know, a member of the Continental Congress was granted the the generalship of the new Continental Army in 19, I guess, of seven in not 1775. Mm -hmm. He he or is it earlier than that? But anyhow, 1775. And he had and he had raised an, a kind of a militia using his own funds as well. I think. Yeah, quite, I mean, quite, he was right? used to doing that in in Virginia, the the Virginia uh, militia, absolutely. And he had always aspired to be an officer in the British Army. But he was never given that that rank. It was always a colonial rank that he was given. Uh, way that, to fuck it up, British Empire. You fucked up. If you were oh, more yeah. meritocratic, none of this would have happened. You bet. 1775. But, but here's the thing. When he took up arms, he did so, as did most Americans in 1775, not for independence. It wasn't even on people's minds. The idea was they wanted the, the British monarch and parliament and the empire to recognize that they had the same rights as their British cousins back in Britain. That is, Absolutely. that they, they had the same rights as what used to be called the rights of the freeborn Englishman or the rights of the freeborn Britain. At, in American uh, school books, it's taught as no taxation without representation, but better, it should have been no legislation without representation. But yeah. conservatives like to harp on the idea of taxes as an, as an evil. So they, they, they always sort of wrote that into the school books. Actually, well, while, said, while, we're, while we're on this topic, just one quick question. Yeah. I mean, that, that it would have, I mean, it, it, as the way the way I understand it is it would have constant like it would have been constituted by like some kind of representation in British Parliament, right? Yeah, right. And but like that, but that would have been giving that to colonial subjects would have probably to a lot of conservative minds in the UK been kind of you know the thin edge thin edge of the well, wedge, right. so to well, speak. The British had a good answer for it. Only look, probably only one out of every twenty English men could vote because it was property requirements. Not to mention you had to probably be an Anglican to do so. So as a, as opposed to, you know, a, a Methodist or a Jew or a Catholic, which who never would have been accorded those kinds of rights. So the thing is, if only one out of 20 Englishmen could vote, Parliament, as far as it was concerned, basically spoke of virtual representation. We represent right. everybody, whether they have a vote or not. So. Well, isn't that nice? <laughs> right. So why should the colonies complain? We represent them. How should they think? You know, why should they think otherwise? So anyhow, so when Washington and his men r rose up and, and, and took, took up arms, their feeling was they were fighting to be treated as 
as Britons, B-R-I-T-O-N-S. Mm. And what, in fact, to give you an example of how much they thought that, even in January of 1776, the very, you know, it's like several months before any declaration occurs, before the Continental Congress even discussed the idea of independence, it was the month in which Thomas Paine actually published Common Sense, calling for independence and the making of a democratic republic, basically saying we have it in our power to be to begin the world over again. Washington was still convening dinners with his officers, and the very first act at dinner was to rise and make a toast to George the Third. Sure. So, okay. Well, then common sense appears, and in fe- I believe it was in February that Washington writes to one of his one of his former adjutants. He might still have been an adjutant, but I believe he was down in Philadelphia and not with Washington in um, in New York. And and Washington wrote. Um, this pamphlet, Common Sense, is working a wondrous change in the minds of the men. This is the moment in which he, he realizes his men, these farmers and artisans and laborers, are all becoming truly radical. They're thinking in terms of a demo, of independence and a democ- or at least a republic or a democratic republic. That's when Washington actually, for the first time ever, comes out, to my, mind, to my knowledge, because I've been looking for other evidence, in favor of independence. So the point about this is that what makes Washington great, at least in the, in the, as a leader, he's not president, but at least as a leader, is that he's been pushed by working men and women, but especially working men in his ranks, to you know a radical stance, a truly radical stance, a revolutionary stance. In fact, that's you know for a start. It's also worth noting that when he got his men, who were mostly Virginians, up to uh, up to New England, where he was first sent by the Continental Congress to, to confront the British army around Boston. When he arrived there, the, the New England militias that had gathered to, to add, you know, as a fighting force, they were very multicultural. They were not only whites, they were also Native Americans, they were also mixed race, and they were also African American, probably any number of slaves amongst them. And Washington had been given orders by the Continental Congress that, that only whites should be able to serve in the army. And no one actually tells this story, but I'm convinced it was probably the case that Washington tried to, to, to you know, separate them from the army. But you know, his the militia just weren't going to accept it. They were, we were all Americans. They might well have said, and Washington has basically got permission from the Continental Congress to allow even blacks in the army, though supposedly not slaves. But I doubt if he could have told the difference, frankly. Um, so that indeed, by the end of the revolution, I believe. 20% perhaps, maybe more, of the Continental Army, the American Revolutionary Army, was, were people of color, men of color. So let's not forget from the bottom up, right from the beginning, is what, is what makes Washington great. Now we go to Lincoln. Think about Abraham Lincoln, mm. who always hated slavery. If it had been in his power from the very start, he would have signed the Emancipation Proclamation as soon as he entered the White House. But he was concerned that if he did so, that he would lose what were known as the border states. There were the northern states who had not seceded. There were the southern states that had seceded from the Union. But then there were states like Maryland and Kentucky and Missouri. And these were border states that had not seceded, but they were slave states. And if he had signed the Emancipation Proclamation too quickly, it's quite likely those states might have seceded as well. And that's the last thing he needed. Well, the other thing is, is that he also knew that he needed to have the American people not just not just ready to fight to sustain the Union, but to understand that the war really was about slavery. So 
he begins his presidency. And what he soon discovers as the Union Army is, you know, sort of heading south all the way along the Confederate line, you know, from the east in Virginia all the way out to Missouri and the Mississippi River, is that slaves themselves have heard about the fact that the Union Army is ready to crush the Confederacy. And they are leaving the plantations in droves, these slaves, and heading right. to, the, to the Union lines, demanding that they be allowed, if not to enlist yet in the army, to enlist in the workforce that would build the fortifications of the army, supply the troops with food, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at first, Lincoln wasn't sure what he was going to do, although he had aspirations to do something. His own generals were torn between, you know, sort of bringing them into the camps versus sort of, you know, creating sides, something like, you know, prison camps for them. Ultimately, there were those generals who, you know, put them to work. And and Lincoln was ecstatic, you might say, because this empowered him in a fashion to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, especially after some, some, you know, at least some victories of the Union Army. So in 1862, Lincoln gives a speech. Remember here, he's being propelled. He also knew that as the Union Army went south, it even these northern white workers and farmers were rather horrified at what slavery entailed, that it wasn't just hard work, it was just awful conditions. So Lincoln gives a, a very famous speech in December 1862, which today would be called the State of the Union message. And he mm -hmm. says, fellow citizens, we know what we must do. The whole world knows what we must do. We know that we must bring an end to slavery. And then he goes on to say, we don't do it only for the slaves, we do it for ourselves. Because Lincoln's whole argument regularly was that, that since race was basically this artificial construct, I know he makes racist statements along the way, but the point is, he understands the degree to which humanity is humanity, and race is a, is a, is a social construct driven by skin color. And he he's basically says, you know, what would keep, you know, what would keep folks from extending slavery to white folks if they're so committed to slavery? But he then is he's literally going to now you know issue the Emancipation Proclamation at the outset of 1863, and there again the Union Army by war's end probably you know 250,000 African American or biracial troops served in the Union Army. So Lincoln's greatness, not unlike Washington's greatness, is the capacity of Americans to 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 go radical when when a mortal crisis confronts them, they're capable of going radical. In the case of the revolution, the creation of the or makings of a democratic republic. In the case of the Civil War, the ending of slavery, driven by northern whites who realized what was at stake and southern blacks who were damn eager to serve the Union cause. And then we come to the to the Roosevelt story. By the way, you want to ask me a question before I keep going? No, no, no. Finish this, and then I got I have a question for you after this. Okay, okay. So. So FDR becomes president in the midst of the worst economic and social catastrophe. Now, he was primed as a progressive. There was no doubt about his progressive aspirations. You only have to look at his speeches during the campaign to realize just how progressive he was and look back to, the, to his experience as governor of New York from 1928 until he ran for president in 32. And you know that he was a progressive with a capital for P. Sure. And likely, if, we, if, if Roosevelt could have, he probably should have he probably could have called himself a social democrat, capital S, capital D, but that in, that implied socialism, and he was not prepared to to go there as a, a, necessarily. A little tougher to do back then than now. Yeah. Yeah, especially since the socialist parties of Europe were social democratic in in name. So if you went to socialism, in, in if you went to social democratic here, it might well you know 
bring on a new Red Scare in the United States. Yeah. So he becomes president, and in the first hundred days, he launches a, a diverse array of initiatives, all of which make it clear that he is prepared to use government to do for Americans what they cannot do themselves. And that involves two things, recruiting their laborers on a grand scale to transform the American landscape and the American public infrastructure to modernize America and to make it a cleaner, healthier, safer place to be. And he's also prepared when, especially because of folks in the Senate who encourage this, as well as labor leaders who are, are who have become his allies, he, he signs into law first in 1933, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which provides for the collective bargaining rights of workers. And he actually says when he signs this bill into law, which has the first federal minimum wage included, he actually says, no company should be allowed to operate in the United States that does not pay a living wage. In other words, he, he's not even using the term minimum wage. He's saying, you know, if we go in the right direction, I'll be signing a bill someday that will provide for a living wage. And then in 1935, he signs the he not only signs the Social Security Act, which creates Social Security in the United States, he signs the National Labor Relations Act, which means that the government will back workers' efforts to organize unions and secure collective bargaining, aka also known as in the 1930s, industrial democracy in the United States. But how does this happen? Because Roosevelt literally invites Americans in reg regularly in speeches to push him, and Americans themselves end up pushing him. Unionists, even women who organized the Housewives Leagues, as well, the, the, the Housewives Movement, as it was called, and other groups push him to go further even than he might have imagined going all the way through the 1930s. So once again, if we look at, it isn't just luck. What they might say, or what I'd at least say is, Great citizens make great presidents. And what I mean great citizen, I mean progressive, radical citizens on a vast scale make revolutionary or at the least radical or even at the very, very least progressive leaders. So absolutely. But Tug yeah. was right. He was right to say to us we were lucky, but it, hell, it involved a hell of a lot more than luck. It, it involved a sense on the part of Americans that there was a meaning to the United States. There was there was a purpose and a promise that was written into American life by Thomas Paine and then declared in the independent in the Declaration of Independence. And this has its own ongoing propulsion. I call it a radical democratic imperative in American life, which doesn't mean it doesn't mean things will necessarily go that way. But it means that that progressive leaders need to articulate that promise in a way to remind Americans of who they are and why it is. Now I'll go back to that stuff about the 1990s and the founding fathers fever and the 2000s about the greatest generation. Americans carry with them a deep sense of what it means to be an American. And when they go looking for those kinds of inspirations, the founders and the greatest generation, then, then damn it, the left needs to respond to those aspirations, to those inclinations and articulate an American purpose and promise of a very radical, at least progressive sort, rather than scorn American history. Absolutely, absolutely. I could not agree more. I've got so much uh, bouncing off of that, but I'll, I'll start the wind down procedure here. We're at about 38 minutes. I'll try and squeeze in a couple more questions if possible. Um, I want you to figure we, gotta, we, have, we have maybe up to 15 minutes. How's that? Okay, sounds good. Uh, well, then I'll, I'll, I'll ask both these questions then. The first was, I mean, we're, I think there's a very 
traditional form or mode of history goes back a long way um, that treats historical figures uh, very much in isolation, um, is, is usually pretty uh, averse to talking about maybe some of the, the very obvious practical kind of forces and, and uh, factors at work in, a, in, a, uh-huh. in someone's historical life. You know, we, yeah. people would kind of have preferred a long time to think, you know, Julius Caesar showed up on the shores of Britain, said, I came, I saw, I conquered. He was just this amazing person, and and they're not interested in hearing about the kind of nitty gritty of of the forces that might have actually been at work for this historical person. But I've always found it's much more interesting to learn about kind of the complexities of the, the history, and and I wonder like does it actually diminish someone's it, people it, people want heroes of course right and there's of course all kinds of heroic figures in history and just in everyday life but does right. it diminish does it diminish someone's status as a hero to to know that they had this complexity going on in their life and they they maybe they were because in my mind it makes someone more heroic to understand that they were reacting to things going on around them and they weren't just this kind of character in a story you know well let's put it this way when you say that i mean of course nobody is a saint okay and but the, but but i think what we need to understand is this let's take the case of jefferson okay he, he's the most in some ways the most controversial figure For in sure the- Because here's Jefferson, the slave owner, the aristocrat, you might say, in Virginia, one of many aristocrats in Virginia at the time, who at the same time regularly wrote and spoke as as something of a radical and a radical Democrat, although he, he actually had far more faith in family farming as the basis for democracy than he ever did for working people in cities. He he, he mm. had very, very little trust in, in urban laborers and artisans. He'd kind of an agrarian utopianism or something? Yeah, yeah. And or what they used to call an agrarian republicanism, probably in in his mind, you know. But but it is also the case that in this at this moment, and by the way, I mean this is a man who also had the audacity to take as a lover after his wife's death, a slave who was herself a half-sister to his wife by way of the fact that their father had slept both with a white mother and a black woman. Who, oh, I didn't I didn't know that about the father. Yeah, I didn't know they yeah, were had this, some pe- wow. Yeah. Some people said that Sally Hemings, the slave whom he took as his lover and, and by most accounts now had children with, that one of the reasons he was so drawn to her was that she reminded him of his of his wife who had passed away so but in any case so we know about that we know about that this is the same man however who couldn't bring himself at least washington on in his will provided for the liber- for the for the emancipation the manumission of his own slaves yeah of his own slaves and the only reason he didn't perhaps act sooner arguably is the fact that he had no right to do that for his wife's slaves. And she, by the way, he married into money. She was very, very wealthy. She was a widow. Um, so the thing is, but nevertheless, Washington Washington did provide for the, for the liberation of his slaves on his passing. And moreover, but Jefferson, Jefferson seemed to hold on, just hold on, right? Mm-hmm. And yet this is the same man, Jefferson, who authors the declaration and says, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalien, you know, inalienable rights. Unalienable. I always get that wrong. I should know better. Um, I think it's an inalienable. I think it's unalienable. Uh, well, they're not alienable. Let's put it that. I'll bet you. I'll bet you had a cabbage. We'll, we'll, I'm, we'll I'm not going to bet out. you. No, I'm going to look it up even as we speak because I. This is the thing that I used to know it, and then somebody confused me by insisting they were. Uh, I mean, 
the, the Jefferson it's question, it's the, like the, the slavery question is definitely a really... By the way, Isaac, you're a Canadian. I'm telling you, it's unalienable, okay? Unalienable. Okay. And by the way, I'm, Can I'm Canadian American. I'm a full bred Canada type. ever declared its independence, which it never did. It might have been inalienable, but the United States did. By the way, I have a lot of friends. Let me put this up. You and not just you, but I have a lot of friends who are Canadian. How's that? So No, it's a horrible, <laughs> terrible country. Don't worry about it. Um, so I, I don't want to get too caught up on necessarily on the slavery question, because obviously, like, that's that's Sorry, definitely like a, a bit of a Gordian knot. He writes these words, which, by the way, the very first people in the revolution to grab hold of Jefferson's words to make a political weapon of them were, were blacks and, and black slaves in the New England states. They said, OK, all men are created equal. Sounds great to us. And sure. And I mean, what did, what did Ho Chi Minh, who did Ho Chi Minh quote when, in, when yeah. Vietnam declared war? You know, they quoted the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's, a, it's an important document for, for the globe, really. Yeah. By the way, so Thomas Paine's common sense is, is this truly revolutionary call, okay? And then Jefferson stands on Thomas Paine's shoulders and writes Declaration of Independence. So, so what happens is that African-American slaves in the North and African-Americans generally make the most of this. Because, by the way, in the revolutionary years of 1776 to 1783 and beyond, for a while, the most important document in the popular mind was Common Sense by Thomas Paine, not the Declaration. The Correct. Declaration becomes all the more significant in later years. Now, so, yeah, and then, and undeniably, Lincoln, as a, as a young politician in Illinois, made some remarks that clearly could be read today as, as racialist. I don't know, if, you know, I'm not sure I'd call him racist in the crudest sense, but decidedly racialist. But this is the same man who hated slavery, absolutely hated slavery. And, you know, and there are other stories that I, that I could tell about that. So, you know, and, and Roosevelt committed three terrible crimes, you might say, as president. First of all, he interned the Japanese Americans from the West Coast mm -hmm. to the interior. You know, families were literally, you know, taken from their oh, it's horrible, the horrible. And we did that in Canada, too. Absolutely. Terrible, right. terrible stuff. Yeah. And I just want to say my best friend for many, many years, he's passed away, was a Japanese-American professor alongside of me who was born in one of those camps while his own father, who was Japanese-American, was fighting in the army, and I think in a military intelligence role, because he knew I th he learned, not sure how well he knew, well, he probably knew Japanese well enough from his parents. Mm. Well, there's but, a very famous, uh, that all, the very famous all-Japanese regiment that fought in the European theater. Right, the 442nd, well, the, the most yeah. decorated regiment in, in the army of in the Second World War, American forces. And they were called the Purple Heart Battalion, the Purple Heart referring to the number of wounded in, sure. who, and, and injured and so on. So, I mean, that's the first. The second great, the second great sin is that, it, which is that Congress was so conservative that even given their progressive politics, too many of them still held on to kind of racialist, anti-Semitic kinds of attitudes, obviously. And, and a majority of the Senate could not be persuaded to lift the immigration uh, quotas that had been imposed in 1924, on, on, even on European immigration. And also the State Department was infamously anti-Semitic at the time. So even though the United States admitted more ref Jewish refugees than anywhere else, it was still a very limited number. And one could say that uh, that Roosevelt didn't do enough, basically, to secure a haven for for Jewish refugees. And by the way, even uh, Robert Wagner, who had 
was born in Germany and, and became senator in New York State, could not get his fellow senators to lift the quotas. And, I'll, and the last point I'll make about that is, um, I blanked on what it was. The point is we know that, <laughs> I blanked because I was already starting to think of the third crime. And the third, not so much as, wasn't so much a crime as, as it was a terrible mistake in many ways, is that FDR did not desegregate the military during World War II. Right. And but and but I think what we can expl we can explain each one of those historically. And I'll expl tell you the third one is that military leaders literally had no sense of history, utterly dumbasses, you might say, and failed to have any recognition or or or, or knowledge of the fact that African Americans had fought as bravely at least as whites during the revolution during the Civil War. I mean, it's just horrible to, to consider the fact, horrible to consider the fact that after the American Revolution, the only time American troops finally served on a grand scale in integrated forces was probably Korea and then Vietnam. Um, so Roosevelt maintained a segregated military during World War II. Um, yeah. But I mean, he was like everyone else. I mean, these people do exist in a historical milieu. I mean, I'm not saying I, I want right. to absolve no, no, people exactly. of any of anything. Right. Or, but but I'm, right. I mean, I think I think it's pretty childish to either think of, you know, say Thomas Jefferson as, you know, all good or all bad. But like, it's definitely bizarrely, bizarrely, that is kind of a contact that is kind of the, dis the discourse that's out there to a large extent. Right. And in fact, and in fact, two of my intellectual heroes, both Thomas Paine and the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, wrote in their respective ways, uh, warning us not to be historical chauvinists. And what it, they meant is that it's it's easy enough to scorn figures who we shouldn't terribly scorn in the past, though we might hold their sins against them. Considering the fact, let us hope, that those in the future will be able to look back on us as utterly Neanderthal in our social and cultural practices and attitudes. Mm. Uh, before you go, uh, I wanted to ask you just to bring it back to the present day. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden is no FDR, so we're, we would have to be imagining some kind of progressive leader um, sometime, say, in the next 10 years. But when when you look at the different movements out there that are yeah. uh, lobbying and pressuring uh, the, the new administration, I mean, I think I think there's been some victories for a lot of environmental groups, although obviously some there can be two, one step forward, two steps back sometimes with some of these cabinet appointments and whatnot. But let um, me just say one thing: we shall see. That that's right now. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't think we shall see. Yeah. Are there areas? Are there areas that you take like inspiration in terms of groups out there that you see doing the kind of uh, political wrangling and lobbying um, that okay, you think well, people could take inspiration from, or or perhaps some areas that you think we need to improve? Good question. Good question. Let me put it this way. If we go back not too many years, say 2014-15, there was a hell of a lot of percolation from the bottom up in this country. You had the fight for 15, you, had, you know, $15 minimum wage. You had the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina led by Reverend Barber, who's now the head of the Poor People's, uh, or, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the organization, but it's basically the, the, the survival of the Poor People's movement from uh, Martin Luther King's last years. Um, you had the, the Women's March, of course, which indicated the degree to which women were, were just not going to put up with, with, with the worst that the right wing might want to offer offer them. Um, you had the, the Keystone Pipeline movement, the anti-fracking movement. Um, I know I'm going to leave stuff out. Teacher strikes, okay? Wildcat strikes in some places. Te the Chicago teacher strike 
the union strike in in Chicago itself, the others being in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and places like that. I mean, there was a lot of activity and energy which did not necessarily cease. It's still going on. The point is this. We really do need to do everything we can to encourage progressive labor leaders to somehow create this kind of broad left front to challenge the Biden administration as much as possible. Probably the brightest light in the labor movement right now is a woman named Sarah Nelson, who heads the Airline Flight Attendants Union, which is also part of the Communication Workers um, Union. And seriously speaking, I mean, she is the one who in, I'm forgetting the year, 2018, 19, brought an end to Trump's government shutdown by threatening to walk off you know, take all of the that's right. Yeah, I remember. And, and and I will confess that not confess, I'll make it clear. Sarah is a friend of mine now. Mm. And and I can't imagine anyone on, in the labor movement who offers more hope than she does. And, and I would just hope that next fall, when the AFL-CIO convenes to choose a new president, they seriously consider making her the president. So I, I there are things happening. OK, but let's not forget, we've just we're going through nine months of this pandemic. And I know it's hit Canada badly, too, but the way in which Canadians have responded at least gives one hope in Canada. The, the way in which Americans have responded, you know, it's, it's become a political divide between those who want to wear, who will wear the masks. They may not want to, but they will. And those who do not. And we've had spike upon spike in the number of cases. And I live in a, in a state which has witnessed some really awful spikings. And I actually am in a city and a county which witnessed some of the worst of the lot. And I can tell you that I've, you know, my wife and I have been hunkered down at least, you know, I don't think we've walked further than a mile away from our house at any given time, usually off into the woods. Otherwise, we get in a car and, and try to avoid encountering people other than when we need to shop or maybe go to the dentist, whatever. Mm. So, I mean, I'm ready for some new leadership. I said nine. I said nine. Well, when Bernie Sanders pulled out, he's been my candidate forever. I I had no reservations, contrary to what people might have expected. No reservations in endorse. Well, not so much endorsing, but saying I was going to vote for Biden because, as deplorable as Biden was, he was not as despicable as Trump was. So now and, I and and you didn't I, have like seven months worth of energy to argue a point that didn't necessarily need you know to be argued that hard it's amazing to me that people couldn't see the difference be and i'm and some of the people who will listen to this podcast will curse me for saying this but i cannot be, believe believe people were foolish enough not to see the difference between joe biden and donald trump joe biden may again deplorable but at least we'd be able to fight on we'd live to fight on and in trump's case i had no idea if we'd be living to fight on so but it, there are movements afoot and i and but the degree to which movements will prevail and push Biden in, into the direction, the left that he needs to go to, to confront the crisis we now face, not unlike, as I said before, 1770s, 1860s, and 1930s and 40s. Seriously speaking, we, we really do need more unity on the left. And that left unity can only be provided really by way of progressive labor leaders who call into being a broad united front. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, we need to try and leave the insularity behind as much as possible, which um, is a topic we can dive into more the next time we chat. If you're amenable, sure, absolutely. Um, you're a real prince for coming on and giving us uh, your time. I'm only we, sorry we, I'm not a hockey fan, so we could take that up. That's OK. That's OK. I, I, I think <laughs> I was kind of frustrated this week because I 
I did, wasn't releasing tons of night rules, so I think I ended up releasing like five or six hockey podcasts this week, <laughs> <laughs> even though there's still no hockey. But don't worry about that. And uh, you know, we appreciate, uh, yeah, we appreciate all your insights. Just very, I, th- I think there's a million more things we could talk about. So um, I'm sure we'll get. Oh. To them. I don't plan on, I don't plan on disappearing. At least I, I hope nothing happens that leads me in that direction. So. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Thank you.